Hey everyone, Abel here. I think there are people who were born to be educators and mentor figures. I believe my guest today is one of these people. Yes, you've heard it and seen it right. Mr. Eric Helms is back. Well, Mr. as of now, because he's gonna get his PhD very soon. For those of you true fitness lovers, this guy requires no introduction whatsoever. He's a natural pro bodybuilder, a top-level powerlifter, and one of the biggest names in the coaching sphere as a member of 3D Muscle Journey. He's also a lecturer and content provider of the Shredded by Science Academy, and with his recent books he has authored and published together with Andy Morgan and Andrea Valdez, he forever changed what people in the bodybuilding sphere will associate with when they think of the word pyramid. In this interview, we talked about his philosophies on business, monetizing information, and on being a coach in general. We, of course, geeked out on various nutritional and training topics, such as tracking all three macros as opposed to just calories, whether or not you can train your metabolism to run faster, high-frequency training, and later we even talked about balancing being fit and living interesting and happy lives. So all in all, lots of cool topics. Again, because I have picked a smart man's brain for over an hour, watch out for the timestamps in the description to navigate between the topics we touched on. Hope you'll enjoy this interview, let me know what you think of it, and subscribe for more stuff. All right, let's bring on Eric Helms. I read with you in multiple interviews that your goal has been for a long time to become a go-to guy uh, for natural drug-free lifters, bodybuilders, powerlifters. And you are certainly one of the go-to guys in the industry. But would you say that you've achieved everything you wanted, that you set out for yourself to achieve in the beginning? That's a good question. Um, I think first I'd want to preface it with like I... I think I have a, a, a relatively strong ego that drives me to like achieve things, but I also recognize that um, no matter what, really what we're told, I don't think achievement is really what makes people happy. Um, it'll keep you going, and it'll be a good thing if if you achieve you know positive things for yourself and for others. But um, I try to keep myself grounded and going back to you know is this making a positive contribution? Is this helping my community, my team, etc. But it's always going to be there that I want to be the man kind of thing. I think that's just part of uh, who I am, and I, I accept that. Um, and no, I'd probably say I, I wouldn't. I haven't achieved that. I'm not sure I ever will achieve that, just because. Um, in many ways, it's like bodybuilding. There's no, there's no, there's no defense. It's not like there's not going to be some awesome people who come up. Like I mean, there's Alan Aragons, there's Lyle McDonalds, there's Greg Knuckles, there's you know, there's, there's a lot of great people doing a lot of great things who are. Um, putting out awesome content, and some of them I'm just like blown away by their their knowledge, their skill, their writing ability, um, or if they're on a different medium, their ability to present. So I think I think I found a good pace and a good area to contribute for myself, um, and I think I keep it pretty targeted, and I think I do a good job of giving practical information to the um, you know the drug free community, and it's a small community, but I think. Um, I think we can definitely, especially as a team as a whole, probably improve our reach um, and get more information out to more people. So, so I would say no is the answer to your question. We haven't achieved that yet. And uh, and speaking of contribution and and um, giving giving out information, one thing that I've noticed in your work and and it seems to be like some kind of a, a mission or a statement or something, but correct me if I'm wrong, is that you're just putting out so much 
information for free and so much valuable information that I know for sure that that other people, even with integrity, would ask a lot of money for. Um, so, kind of, is there a philosophy behind it, or that's just how you roll? Yeah, I I think um, well, I, I think for one is that I've I've seen a lot of success with that, um, and I'll get to that in a second. But but it is sort of just how I roll. Like I I think um, information should be available, you know, and I think good information should be available. That's kind of the spirit of of science. That's kind of the spirit of 3D Muscle Journey of us trying to support the community. Um, and if people and I, I think that, that that does lead to success. I think, uh, for example, I know some some coaches will play their cards very close to their chest. Like they won't want to answer certain questions. They won't want to do. They won't want to get out there um, too much. They want to kind of keep the secrets for themselves. And I think a lot of the times that's it's almost based on insecurity. Like even if I could give someone all the information and they could memorize it, that I know that still wouldn't make them me like the ability to put the information together, make the right decisions in certain situations, understand what that means in the context of other things, and gather more information and then present it. Like, um, not to sound cocky, but I'm, I'm very confident in my ability to do what I do, that it's relatively unique. Um, and it's not just a collection of, of, of bulleted items, you know. So um, I think sometimes people are motivated to, oh, I've got to monetize that or I need to put value to it or I've got to hide that away just for my subscribers, not just by monetary reasons, which is very understandable, but more so because they think they can't give away all the secrets, you know. Um, and all we, we've ever seen with 3D Muscle Journey is that the more good information we put out, the more people come to us. And, you know, we've gotten to a point where we have as many clients as we want or, or can want at any time. We're a, a Facebook post or a, a Instagram post or a video away from saying, hey, we're taking on clients to being much more fuller than we want. Um, so it has been a successful strategy. And in terms of me just personally, not even as a coach, but as like a writer, um, when I put together the Muscle and Strength Pyramid eBooks, where I really dug into the, the research and gave you know training programs and a lot more depth and detail to it and asked for, you know, people to buy my book, I got a very good response, you know. Um, and the, the information is, is out there in a sense that someone could piece together all of the things I've done and, and maybe replicate at least the, the theory of the books. I don't think they'd be able to write the training programs that I put in there and stuff like that. Um, but uh, people are still, they find it useful. I think the synthesis itself is, is useful taking all the different concepts and putting it together. Um, and, you know, for example, taking the, the actual research articles I wrote, uh, the review articles on evidence-based recommendations for natural bodybuilding that I wrote with Peter Fitchin and Alan Aragon and uh, the training one that we included uh, Brad Schoenfeld on, like those pretty much tell you the building blocks of what a program would look like. But uh, that, that kind of crossing the bridge from science to practice is also something that a lot of people struggle with. Um, and I think I'm I'm fortunate in that I started as a coach, started as a trainer and an athlete, and then bridged to science. You'll see that sometimes when people start in either realm individually, that they, they have trouble bridging the other way, and they can't quite incorporate either the, the best science or make a, a useful program out of it. Yeah, actually, so two, two quick comments off of that. 
One is I think when you put together the, the nutrition and training pyramids, I think dozens of uh, fitness personalities probably went like, damn it, like that was gonna be my next product. <laughs> like, and he just puts it out in a YouTube video, you know, for everybody to see and, you know, but, um, but that's kind of a funny comment. But the second one is, it's interesting because there's always kind of two lines of thought on this, how, how much can we put out for free and how, what should be monetized. And there is also the rationale that people value something more if it's, you know, as, you know, money for. So, and, and, and I could see that as well. But at the same time, I think, like you said, it's probably, I would agree that probably it's be better to operate from a mindset of abundance versus scarcity. And, yeah. And, yeah. And it's very difficult to establish yourself if you are, and I'll I'll uh, I'll go really mainstream here and talk about uh, yeah, Gary Vaynerchuk. Yeah. You know, he talks about yeah. um, jab, 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 hook. You know, and and the idea there is that you give value, 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 and then you ask. You say, hey, you know, I am I have to pay my bills. Is there? Would you be willing to take this this one product and and purchase it? And of course, you have to have that make sense in your whatever industry you're in. Um, and come from a, a very genuine place of I'm trying to make this a better place. I have a mission statement. I'm trying to fulfill that. I'm not just about the bottom line, uh, which is always where I've come from and where we've come from. And I think I, I, there's nothing wrong with people who take in a, a strategy where a lot of their stuff is monetized and they are asking for you to pay for it. I mean, that's just the way our society works. We need money to live. You know, that's 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 basically how I tell you. I mean, I value what you're doing as if I pay for it. And some people, especially very young people who don't really have to support themselves yet or have a family or uh, have bills or student loans, et cetera, don't always understand that. I remember when I was like a teenager, I'd be like, oh, yeah, my, my buddy works at the, uh, the the frozen yogurt shop. He's going to hook us up, you know. And <laughs> that's just kind of the mindset I'm in, right? And, and that's okay when you live at home and your buddy is just an employee or whatever. But... I've had people in my life be like, hey, can you hook me up with a book? Or, hey, can you hook me up with coaching? And I'm kind of going, you know, I'm not really hooking you up. I'm, I'm, I'm actually just giving you money because I'm the business owner now. I'm not my own employee, <laughs> you know. And, and, uh, and the friends who do get it are the ones who wouldn't let me give them, you know, my book for free or, or who would want to pay me for coaching because they, they want to have that, that value transaction, really. But... Um, Anyway, I, I kind of got off, off topic, but the point is, is that when you operate from a position of always trying to monetize things, it's hard to actually get the exposure to be able to get you know people to actually purchase it. So you kind of have to think about where you're at in your career. Like um, if you are, are not really well established and everything you do is, is for money, then you're always going to be kind of just trying to pinch pennies. But if you can get yourself a relative amount of exposure before then you say, hey, and I would actually like to sell something or sell a service, uh, then because you're operating from that place of abundance, you can actually cash in and, and, and make a decent amount of money from that. So I think people just need to be strategic about it if, from, from the business side of things. Right. And um, just just because um, how you mentioned the, your experiences, how this worked out with 3D Muscle Journey, uh, that reminded me that, um, you know, I, I follow 3D Muscle Journey's YouTube channel and, and I watch a lot of your content and it's kind of funny, like it's almost like a, a fitness uh, Avengers team, you know, it's like uh, almost this, this super team of uh, 
kind of very dif different uh, personalities and individuals and it, it collect it, like makes up this beautiful team and what would you say is like the Eric Helms uh, soup like what makes you world-class or, or a top you know player in this sphere what would you say well first I would say thank you that's very kind I appreciate it um, and I think I think where, where my niche is is in that I can distill what are often presented as complex topics into practical advice um, and also do so while respecting the fact that people are people rather than just that they are you know kind of robots who can do anything you know I think the um, including the human element and the practical element to complex topics is, is probably what um, I try to do and I think that getting people to think in non-binary ways is, is a product of that. that's kind of the, the hierarchy of the pyramids or the ranges that I'll supply for things that that's that if I had to, to kind of drill it down that's probably how I would describe what I do right right and um, one last thing and uh, like on, on this topic and then I'll stop uh, browning my nose here but there are luckily a lot of intelligent people in this sphere uh, but Honestly, like listening to you in podcasts and, and, and interviews and stuff, like when, when you start speaking, I, I would say there is very few people that can express themselves with such clarity and just, you know, their speeches have this almost poetic, you know, like element to it. Is this something that you worked on, for example, by reading a lot of books and, you know, working on your vocabulary and whatever? Or did you actually practice speaking, you know, for yourself, you know, as a routine or something again thank you and and uh and that's a, that's so it's interesting i i got i okay to answer your question very directly i was not always a really good speaker um i became what i i think is is a, is a good speaker largely from uh teaching so right around 2011 um i was in the mid middle of i i um, almost just finished my bachelor's degree and was starting my master's and I I thought I knew some stuff um, and I got hired at a I've been a personal trainer since 2005 and I got hired at a, um, a for-profit uh, community college basically it's a, it's a college that had uh, called Bryan Colleges in Sacramento where I used to live and they had a massage therapy degree that you do in two years an associate like an applied associates uh, fitness trainer certification uh, court reporter, and then um, I think medical transcription, right? So uh, I got hired on at, in the fitness fitness trainer certification, and I basically got thrown to the wolves. And they said, "Hey, you got to teach anatomy and physiology. You got to teach it." It was a, basically a condensed two-year course, just specifically to teach a personal trainer everything they need to know at a high level to then uh, to get into the field. And it is one thing to understand things in the way that it makes sense for you to pass a test. Uh, but it is wholly another to be able to explain it to a bunch of people who are from a very different background and think differently than you and to have them ask questions that you never even thought to ask. So, you know, this was right around the time where the economy had fully rebounded in the States. Um, so we, I had people who were 18 and decided that traditional college education wasn't working for them. And I had people who were 45 and the, uh, you know, the, the blue collar job they had was, was gone. Like the, the company was closed or the factory laid off all the workers or whatever. And they decided, you know, I'm, I do love working out. I need to 
reskill myself and become a personal trainer. So I've got to teach people who just got out of high school but are, you know, 10 years younger than me. And I've also got to teach people who are, you know, changing career and are 10 to 20 years older than me uh, and haven't been in high school for a long time, you know, or, or, or never went to college at all. And, um, and that was a really intimidating initially, but, it, but eventually a transformative experience. I was going through my master's, learning the theory, teaching it to others in ways that I'd never had thought about it while then implementing concepts into coaching. So I was having to do full-time coaching at the time of 3D Muscle Journey, and I was trying to save money. That's why I was teaching and coaching to eventually go to New Zealand where I am now. And I was teaching 30 hours a week, and that was mostly lecture at the start before I went to like a hybrid format. But so for six to eight months, I was, you know, five hours, six hours, five days a week, just just in there um, teaching concepts. And uh, it really gave me a much more complete perspective on it. I think that combined with the fact that I am not only relatively extroverted, but I'm also what I would describe as an external processor. Like when I teach, when I explain things, when I talk about them, I normally get new insights as I'm saying it. So it is very much kind of freeform thinking out loud. Um, so yeah, I do a lot of reading as well, and maybe that's influenced my, my vocabulary, <laughs> but I think I'm kind of a natural speaker. And then that combined with the experience of teaching is probably what you're describing. And I'm glad it comes off so well. That's, that's a relief to hear. Do you, um, do you have like, um, like you, you read a lot of science and studies and stuff. Do you have like a routinely time of the day that you dedicate to reading? Cause, cause sometimes I wonder like, how do you come up with these cool research stuff like science of motivation and things like that? Yeah. So, um, a couple of different ways. So, in the course of doing my master's and my PhD, you just have to read everything on the topic, right? So, um, and I'm also someone who has tried to tackle relatively large topics for my, my master's, my PhD. So my master's was basically manipulating macronutrients and specifically protein for dieting strength athletes and bodybuilders. That's a lot, you know? Um, yeah. And now for my PhD, it's auto-regulating strength training. And that's a lot too. You know, it sounds like, oh, he's doing RPE, but really it's like I've been reading stuff about like HRV, overtraining theory, uh, you know, periodization and regulation of training in general, you know, the whole theory behind undulating and, um, you know, what, and then if you read about periodization theory, you have to think about, okay, well, so why are we periodizing in the first place? Okay, how does hypertrophy contribute to strength and vice versa, all this stuff. So um, the process of doing a research degree definitely forces you to stay in the literature and, and consider things and, and go back to the roots and think of, you know, basically questioning everything. So that's one. Um, another thing was just I came up in kind of the the debating culture of the forums. You know, that that was where I really kind of first cut cut my chops. And I was watching guys like Alan Aragon, Lane Norton, and Lyle McDonald, you know, argue with each other from 2005 to like 2011 when I was on the forums. And I, I wish they still did that. Oh, they do on Facebook. No, that's where you got to be. So, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. So, and then, then same thing on Facebook. Um, and while I don't engage as much as I used to, I think I, I spend more time taking the fruits of that labor and making content for, for more people. I think that really got me to be a skeptic, a critical thinker, and to get an idea of 
what are the what are the things that, that the culture is concerned with, you know, like, and, and, and what are the issues that we have? So the way I kind of see that the people I, I speak to, it's, it's largely people who are very dedicated, but also tend to be pretty obsessive. And that kind of double-edged sword is where I'm always coming at. So this is what feeds their progress. And this is what can, can where they can take it too far. So uh, like the science of motivation, for example, is an example of me not just cutting on this side of the blade, but going to the other side and going right, you know, how do you take it too far if you get too focused on the outcome, you know, and then the other side is, is pretty easy, you know, like, how do I optimize training? How do I optimize nutrition? And then it's, yeah, but optimize it in the context of, you know, being a healthy human who is happy. So that that's kind of where my, my conceptual process goes. The actual practical day-to-day stuff, I do a few things. Um, obviously, if I was to just focus on auto-regulation right now, I would start losing things that I've spent years, you know, learning. So uh, what I'll often do is I have a, just a text-to-speech app on my phone, and when I commute, I listen to a study. Unless I'm in the car with my wife. She doesn't want me to listen to freaking, you know, a computer <laughs> voice talking about protein synthesis or something like that. Um, and I, we also keep uh, up-to-date on a lot of things via uh, the work of others. So, for example, 3DMJ has a subscription to... Alan Aragon's research review. I check out Breck Contreras' strength conditioning research. Um, you know, I read Greg Knuckles' studies, or rather his articles. I, I stay up to date with bodyrecomposition.com. Like, I'm definitely a fan of my of my peers who do the same thing I do, because uh, they often have unique insights that I don't. Um, so I think the fact that it's all of our jobs, uh, you know, to, to stay up on, on, on this stuff is very helpful. I also go to conferences, and I don't just go to conferences and speak and then leave like i went to the nsca conference and i watched you know brad schoenfeld's talk and bill campbell and uh dan baker and and a lot of people who were uh you know in in the field and um so i definitely keep my continuing education going i think that's very important um i'm very much open to the perspectives of others a select few that i i think are really on to something and um and then yeah in the course of my schooling and then also in the course of keeping my ear to the ground to get a feel for whatever one is interested in and what drives their psyche. And then just on a practical level, I, I sneak in the studies when I'm, you know, not doing work for my PhD. Right. Oh, right. and actually more importantly than all that, I, it's my job to keep the 3DMJ team up to date. So on like, you know, a regular basis, I'm presenting on relevant topics to them as coaches um, because it's, it's my job. I'm like the, the chief science officer of, of uh, 3D Muscle Journey, and I need to get like a Star Trek shirt that is 3D right here or something to be the chief yeah, science officer. And uh, so that that actually brings to mind that um, you know I, I've listened to obviously I, I've listened to your reverse diet roundtable debate on Jeff Nipper's channel, which was phenomenal. Like that was one of one of the most prominent fitness events of the internet in this year for sure, and. It, then I, I kind of seen how you've um, slightly changed your stance on, on reverse dieting and, and compared to what it was before. And you kind of said it as an offhand comment that you want to apologize to people that you recommended like the traditional reverse diet strategy before. And that kind of made me think that like as a coach, it, how, how is that for you kind of psychologically when you realize something that, okay, now I'm I'm not sure that actually my clients benefited from what I advised before. Is that sometimes a tough thing to experience as a coach? It's the toughest, in my opinion. I, um, 
I wish I could say that randomly I wake up at 2 a.m. and I think of that time I helped a guy or a gal win their pro card or overcome a, a certain way of thinking and find a much better balance in life. But oftentimes it's the, it's the clients that stick out in my head where I feel like, you know, I dropped the ball. I, I did a disservice to them, you know, um, and, uh, and they're, fortunately they're few and far between, but if you do this long enough, you can always think back and go, man, why did I do that? That really, I just, that was short-sighted. That was, you know, I guess the, the saying is hindsight's twenty twenty. Um, but certainly I look back and just been shocked at, at how blind I was in a situation to a better solution or that what I was currently doing really didn't make much sense, whether it resulted in the client you know, getting an overuse injury that they probably didn't need to get, or that was them struggling and uh, me just being basically saying suck it up when there was a much better way to do it, or something as simple as, you know, I've got 40 clients and two of them both have the same first name and I, I just, you know, I sent the wrong program to, to one of them. You know, the <laughs> silly things like that happen too. I mean, I'm human. So, um, so th those things do bother me and they are definitely hard to deal with psychologically because... You know, I like to see myself as a competent guy, a skilled coach. So um, whenever I have those, those moments where things don't go well or I do drop the ball, it triggers kind of that, that deep-seated imposter syndrome I have of like, oh, am I really actually good at what I'm doing? Um, so it's something I have to, to monitor. And normally I kind of follow it down the rabbit hole, like instead of just trying to talk myself out of, no, 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 bury that. You're not, you're not a bad coach. I go, okay, so why do you really think that? And I try to get introspective and, and really kind of address what at the core is bothering me. And then I try to do something about it moving forward. Like uh, there was a certain client we had where we really had a bad breakdown of communication. And this client felt like I didn't care about her. Um, and uh, surely communication is a two-way street. Uh, and so I made this document that really kind of outlined what is healthy adult two-way street communication so that we were at least making it very clear what our expectations were. And I think from that point, I became a coach who was much clearer in my expectations. Uh, and I did a lot of things differently. Like I do a lot of video messages to my athletes so that they can get the nonverbal cues and the, the tonation of my voice and all that stuff. So I'd like to say that I learned from my, uh, that that's probably the, the best mental solve to like, you know, dampen the pain of, of when I make mistakes as a coach is to try to learn from it and actively do something about it. It's easier just to say, no, 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 it's the client's fault and keep my processes the same. But I almost always try to find where I could have done at least something small better and then move forward as, uh, in the way we operate. Because then it makes me, I feel better about it. You know? So it's got, an, it's, it's got a, it's, it not only does it benefit the clients, it also makes me feel a little more sane uh, because of it. So, so this brings up the question that I didn't even think of asking, but I'm curious, how is Eric Helms as a coach? Now, I'll, I'll specify what I mean. So I, I've been coached by a few people before, and with some of them I had a surprise, you know, because maybe I followed them around on YouTube or on social media, and you kind of gain a picture of a certain person that he must be like this. And then I was surprised, you know, Menno Hanselmans, probably he wouldn't mind me saying this, was one surprise like that, where I was surprised by how hardcore he is as a coach you know um what would what would you say um clients perceive you as um it depends i think uh 
there's, there's a few things we do because of that effect of people get a perception of you. Um, I actually got asked this question um, at the, the London conference that we were at. Someone asked me, uh, you know, if I wanted to choose one of the coaches, how would I go? And I stopped him and I said, we don't let people choose their coach. You know, when you sign up for 3DMJ, we give you to who is um, available. And that's as a logistical purpose. But at the same time, it's actually quite awkward to be a coach and have someone who's followed you and watched you and has a very good sense of who you are, but you have no sense of who they are. You know, if outside of the internet, if that was just something where, where I wasn't a semi-public figure, um, if someone walks up to you and says, hey, I've been, been watching you for years, and I know, I know everything about you, and I really want to, you and I should be together, that's called stalking, you know? But, <laughs> but in, 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 our, in our, you know, once you are a public figure and you are a coach, that is the normal process by which you get yourself out there and, and you get clients. Um, but when you have someone who identifies with you or really idolizes you or, or sees you as, as the perfect coach for them, uh, they often end up getting disappointed because they put you on a pedestal and they have almost unrealistic expectations. I think a large part of that is because our the fitness industry is driven by gimmicks, you know, like the supplement industry and the fast fixes. So inadvertently, I think a lot of people make a coach into a gimmick. Like, you know, Eric Helms is going to solve all my problems and I'm going to have these magical gains. And then uh, when they come to me and they find it's really just – us developing a relationship and me giving them a sound approach and listening to their feedback and changing it over time, um, I guess the the simplicity of it can 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 make the person go, oh, you know. Um, <laughs> so we actually don't want people who have who have put us on a pedestal to work with us. Um, so we we that's that's one another reason why we don't take people on specifically. But anyway, the way I coach, um, I'm very much. Uh, all about developing a relationship. I think a lot of people expect, sometimes, especially if they watch a lot of my science-heavy videos, they're going to expect like my adjustments to have like citations after them or something like that. You know, like oh, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, a lot or motivational speech with gladiator music. Right. You know, that could potentially be it too, depending on on what of my content they've watched. But they they might expect very very science-heavy content from me uh, on a one-to-one -one basis. And the reality is is that while science informs the way I program nutrition and training, for the most part, coaching is an art that is really just about, you know, finding a nice balance between two people and, and building a strong relationship and good communication. So um, a lot of the times I will get people who are very analytical, science-focused, OCD-obsessive, and it's me trying to talk them out of things and realize that those things aren't nearly as important as they thought they were. And they were expecting... Um, you know, me to, to feed it almost to be like, yeah, we can find the most optimal program. And most of the time I'm like, Hey dude, this is, this is crazy. When's the last time you went out to dinner with your wife, you know, kind of thing. Um, so I sometimes surprise people like that, um, depending on what of my content they're drawn to. Um, but to more generally answer your question, you know, the way I coach is I see myself as a facilitator to their progress. Um, and a very, and an unbiased, um, but compassionate uh, opinion that, that, I, that can, I can always give them. I, I'm always very honest. I think some, sometimes people are surprised that I will, without hesitation, bring up things that I see as, as issues, but I, don't, I try not to judge them in the process. You know? right. I can't tell you how many times I've had a conversation with someone where I 
recommend that they go see a eating disorder specialist. And that's the first time someone's actually had the courage enough to say that to them. You know, um, just as an example, not always, that's not, not like every single, t- every single time, but that's something that I am very willing to do because I've seen what happens when you're unwilling to do it as a coach and things can fester and get out of control. So, um, yeah, I, I, I hope that answers your question. You know, no, it makes perfect sense. So sign me up. No, I'm just kidding. Um. But, um, so I, I want to continue on this theme of, of kind of mindset and and um, that kind of stuff. But I'd like to geek out a little bit on some fitness stuff because it would be a waste if uh, I didn't pick your brain on that stuff. So we mentioned reverse dieting. So we might as well stay on the topic of metabolism a little bit. So in your team, 3D Muscle Journey, there is this uh, gentleman called Alberto Nunez. And kind of on the, on the theme of metabolic capacity and how metabolism can be trained and all that kind of stuff, he is one figure whose name is mentioned a lot because, you know, people watch his YouTube videos and it seems like he's eating the amount of food that would be like a dreamer bulk for, for most people. And um, you, as, as a friend of his, as, as a colleague, I'm sure you've talked about this kind of stuff. Is it just so happens that he has like a freakishly high metabolism and there is nothing really trainable about that? Or what's the deal there? No, I, I don't think your metabolism is... Uh, well, I mean, it is trainable to a degree, but it's within your own uh, capacity to vary, you know? Um, and I also... I'm not 100% comfortable... Like, I've been using the, the verbiage more and more of saying someone's total energy expenditure. Because when you say metabolism, it almost sounds like you're implying it's something to do with their BMR. Um, and while that might be a part of it, I think probably the biggest variation between individuals, especially at the same body weight and activity level, is probably their NEAT, you know, their, their, their non-exercise activity thermogenesis, which is more complicated than we give it credit. A lot of that has to do with intrinsic properties that you can't change or subconscious physical activity uh, or little things like like posture and just tiny movements that add up over the course of the days, they, they really are not malleable. You know, it's not just like, oh, you're sedentary and he's not. I mean, sometimes you can have somebody who works, works, you know, a physical job, but still burns less calories than another guy. So anyway, um, you're going to have a, uh, a finite amount of adaptation that you can swing up when you're overfeeding and down. Um, I'll use myself as an example. Um, I have maintained all roughly 210 pounds uh, on like 3,300 calories, um, which is reasonable, not not that high. And uh, then to diet down uh, towards the end um, with doing five weight training days and uh, cardio daily, burning maybe 400 calories on average per session. Um, and if you average out my low and high days throughout the week, 1800 calories to lose half a pound a week at about 185 pounds, which is very low. You know, that if you were to just enter those stats into a like TDE predictor, that would put me probably 1,200, somewhere in there below uh, what you'd expect on paper. Um, while the 3,300 when I'm not dieting is basically, you know, right. Maybe the lower quadrant you know, not even a full standard deviation lower than the mean, you know? Yeah. So, um, so yeah, that, that's, that, that's an example of, of me. So I, I can adapt down a whole lot. Um, Berto doesn't adapt down much, you know, he tends to, to stay 
burning a lot of calories even when he diets. It does go down some, but it's not very much. And as he tries to overeat, there's more and more compensation. Um, not completely. I mean, this is a guy who literally got himself up around 240, 250 pounds fat back in the yeah. day when he thought you had to get that big. We're talking 2006, 2005, 2007 yeah. um, to be, not 2007, that's actually when he was cutting down. When he, to, you know, to get muscular, he thought, you know, if I get up to 250, then I can die down to 220. And he actually mm -hmm. had to die down to, to 150 to get his pro card. <laughs> so, um, so, I mean, the, that's the kind of thing where it really just has a lot to do with individual variation. And, uh, and the big credit I give to Birdo is that he's always said that. Like, he, he totally understands that even though he's someone who's on the edge of the bell curve. What you will often see is someone who's a genetic freak or on the other side, not a genetic freak. And they blame every, 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 they, they see everything else through their own perspective. Like right now, there's a, I've been seeing some people just absolutely freaking out because the, the guy on the cover of Brad Schoenfeld's uh, book, they think can't possibly not be on gear. And when you look at the cover, you're looking at it and he's like, yeah, I mean, he's got a good physique, but it's not like, I wouldn't, I personally, having seen a lot of, you know, good naturals, I wouldn't be like, I mean, he could be on gear if he didn't have, if he had average genetics and, but just definitely, yeah, that's yeah. definitely possible naturally. But there's some people in there, and you can tell it's because they may not be that gifted, or that in their experience is just not possible. Um, yeah. And likewise, I think on the other side of it, you'll get the, the genetic freaks who ex expect everyone to have an easy time. Um, and that, and that, that goes with all physical characteristics, not just muscle size, of course. That would be you know, how much you eat. That would be how fast you can run, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I remember... I was at a powerlifting meet, and there's a gal named Kimberly Kimberly Walford there, who is a mm -hmm. powerlifting legend uh, in the USAPL. And this this gal can deadlift basically the same amount I can, 20 kilos lighter as a female. Um, mm -hmm. And I was competing. It was an international meet, so I guess she thought I was you know pretty good. And I'm I'm basically above average as a powerlifter. And she's like, oh, well, I see you at Worlds, and I was like, if I qualify, I don't think I'm going to. And she just looked at me like people don't qualify for worlds, you know, like it just didn't make sense for her, you know, um, it was, it was funny, you know, so that, that's, I think we, we just often forget how our perspective is so colored by the prism of our own experience. So, um, and to Berto's credit, and it's probably because he's coached so many people, he doesn't sit there and go, yeah, you too can eat 4,000 calories and maintain oh. 165 pounds, oh. you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I want to get into a little bit of macro tracking because what I, what I gather, just to sum it up for people uh, who maybe don't listen to you that much, which which is a mistake. But um, so the rundown, basically your approach, as far as I understand, is how closely you have to monitor things is dependent on your goals. So someone who is in the on seat, like a couple of weeks out from stage, wants to hit everything within five grams, and someone who is in the off season might just want to track protein and calories or, or much larger ranges. Now, my question would be, um, basically, what's the reason for someone who will get on stage to track all three macros within five grams, as opposed to just protein, like a set protein or protein and calorie target, and then fill in your carbs and fats, however you wish? Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, the rationale is that because you are typically skirting the low end of, of where you would like to be, or even the low end of, of, of what is fairly suboptimal, you know, I mean, you're, you're already a, 
a place where your calories have to be low enough and your energy expenditure has to be high enough to get to stage condition um, and with such a low, low, low body fat level and typically depleted glycogen that it doesn't take much for you to have a poor day in the gym or just a poor day in life, you know. So when you're walking around at 150 grams of carbohydrate, being at 140, it actually feels different, you know, right. uh, and can impact your life. But, you know, and then that's because you, the body drawing, drawing on body fat is probably not going to happen. It's super, super low, you know, and, and, and it's not going to be an effective way to, to create calories. Um, you're lethargic for a bunch of other reasons. So you become much more dependent on the calories you do have. And there are differential effects of, of fat, carbohydrate, and protein um, that you can actually feel those, those substrate differences when you are, you're quite low in calories and quite low in, in internal stores of energy. On the other hand, when you're like 18% body fat and you have 400 grams of carbs, 100 grams of fat, I would be surprised if you could feel the difference between 300 grams of carbs and 400 grams of carbs and, you know, 130 grams of fat or, or 70, you know. I... Um, for the most part, people don't notice the differences there. And that's the whole reason why, you know, people are so bad at counting calories is because they can easily eat an extra 1,000 and, and think it's, oh, no, I, that, that meal was only 500 calories. No, it was 1,500. Yeah. You can't tell the difference, you know, no. um, especially when, when you are when you're got plenty of internal body stores. So that that's the rationale. Um, also, the stakes are a lot higher. Um, you know, what happens in, in a week uh, matters when you have a 24-week prep to get into incredible condition, uh, and what happens in a week when you're in a 100-week off-season is uh, it's just one little penny deposited into the bank, and, and it's not it's not as critically important. Um, and so, so what that means that as a coach, I'm manipulating things to try to see progress on either a weekly or biweekly basis, depending on kind of the time frame we're looking at. And I need to be sure that what I have set forth is happening, you know. So it's, it's kind of the scientific method. If I have clamped this variable and I manipulate something else, that change, I can attribute it to that, right? Or at least I have a, a good chance of that being the case. But if there's too much variation in the macronutrient intake, then I'm not 100% sure of, of what I'm doing is causing what I, what I think it's doing. Even if this was someone who responded well to various carbohydrate and fat ratios and had adequate protein, that will create differential weigh-ins that I've got to then interpret. You know, if their carbs have big fluctuations, their morning weight is going to have different, big fluctuations. And I'm not going to be sure if they're losing or losing weight or gaining weight. And I will see pictures of them in various states of fullness and flatness. So that can give me false positives or false negatives uh, on their visual and in their weigh-ins. So uh, controlling that variable makes it easier for me to assess progress. Right. Okay. No, that completely clears it off. Because because what I was wondering all the time is, as you made it clear in a recent video of yours, is that carbs, as far as insulin and glycogen is, is concerned, is not really a concern if you have like a reasonable reasonable amount in your diet. But like you said, when you're down at like 150, 140, then yeah, even small differences can can make an actual difference. So yeah, yeah, totally clears it off. And another thing that uh, while we're on the topic of fats and carbs, I also asked this from Lyle and um, I'm super curious in your take on this is there is this notion out there that um, fat in a caloric surplus is more easily tend to make you fatter. So when you're bulking 
it's best to keep fat more moderate, even with isochloric conditions. So um, what is your take on this, if this question makes any sense? It, it, no, it sort of does, because the idea here is that, you know, when you actually want to get into the metabolism of, of fat gain, you know, essentially, if you drive your carbohydrates up and you have a fixed fat intake, then a greater proportion of your dietary fat gets stored, right? Because you're using more of your energy from carbohydrate. And hopefully that makes sense to those listening, right? Yeah. So if you are at fixed calories, or let's not even say fixed calories, it's easier to, to understand this way. Like if you were at maintenance and you're eating 200 grams of carbs and 60 grams of fat, you know, some proportion of those 60 grams of fat is getting stored as body fat, and then you're burning off fat in the later part of the day for a net balance. And let's say you increase your carbs by 50 grams, the, the weight that you gain that is, that is fat will be because more of the, the fat that you are, you're eating is getting stored. So the carbohydrates themselves are indirectly resulting in fat gain for the most part. Um, and that's true of, of the protein as well, because as you use protein and carbohydrates for energy, because it's very difficult to turn you know, a protein or a carbohydrate once it comes into your mouth, eventually to make it into uh, body fat, uh, that means that a greater proportion of your fat is getting stored. Now that said, if you were in a big, big surplus and you're eating a high carbohydrate diet all the time, eventually, yes, you'll get to the point where, uh, you know, over a couple days with very high carb and high fat intake, where you're going to be storing some of your carbohydrate and actually creating fat out of it. But that process is is not nearly as common as we might think. Um, so there's not there's not a complete lack of of logic to that statement that you have to control your your fat levels in a surplus. And I've certainly seen things like that in, in coaching people where it seems like they almost have this kind of fat threshold or if they get too high, all of a sudden their body comp starts to degrade a little more rapidly than it was before. Even with the same caloric level. It, it certainly seems that way. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and for all I know, that could actually be the other side of the equation getting modified that for some, you know, we're getting into a, a less favorable macronutrient composition for them and all of a sudden they get a little lethargic and they're not burning as many calories and energy expenditure. That's, that's supposition. I, I don't know. Um, but there's so much individual variability that it, it's tough to, it's probably inappropriate rather to make statements about general biochem in, in the body based on the experience of one individual. So that may really just be the way they operate, you know? Um, so I, I think, I think, you know, you can have a moderate fat, moderate carb diet if, if you're not in too high of a surplus. But in the, in the end, the amount of fat you gain is going to be dictated by that surplus. You might have some different partitioning effects that are pretty minor. But I would say, you know, in the off-season, for the most part, you know, if you just control your surplus, you're, you're probably not going to have any issues there. That would – so I basically I'm giving a little bit of credence to that idea but saying, you know, it's not going to break thermodynamics. Like if you're on a high-fat diet but you're only in a 100-calorie surplus – you're not going to gain a pound of fat a week, you know? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, uh, yeah, I, anecdotally, I kind of have the same experience as what you just described, although it might just be because overeating on fat is just so much easier. You know, it's so easy to chug down another handful of nuts or something. Exactly. And if you just, if you think about it from a very practical standpoint, you know, being wrong by, like, visually, when you talk about portion sizes and things, um, you know, gram per gram, things are relatively similar. Of course, it really depends on their on their volume, obviously. But um, you you're off by 10 grams of carbs. That's 40 calories. You know, you're off by 10 grams of fat. That's 90 calories. So the the consequence for making similar errors are higher when you're when you 
you're focusing a lot on, on fat intake. So that, that could be a huge part of it. It's, it's more than twice the, the consequence when you think about it calorically. So I think that, that, that may be a huge part of it. And it may be not a biochem thing, but rather just a, uh, a practical application of tracking. Right. Beautiful. Okay. And it's, it's funny because this is exactly the type of concept that would probably create almost like camps on the internet, you know, who are like raging at each other. And here you go. You just clarified it. It's gave a completely reasonable approach or, and those people would probably hear this and be like, Oh, well, okay. Such is the internet. Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, another thing that is a popular thing these days, um, what is your take on very high frequency, well, not very high, but high frequency training? I'm sure you've heard about the Norwegian uh, frequency project. What are your thoughts? Yeah, there's, um, there's and not even just the Norwegian frequency project. There's, there's a lot of studies out now where uh, they've, they've looked at higher frequency approaches. Uh, I was just at the NSCA conference and a, uh, a group... I want to say out of uh, it's either LSU or Alabama. I'm I'm forgetting, and someone's gonna be mad at me. But anyway, it's on my Instagram if someone wants to check that out. That's uh, hashtag or at Helms3DMJ. Uh, but I posted recently they did a study where they had matched volume and trained lifters um, performing basically a powerlifting centric program, and one group did three days a week, one group did six days a week, and in this study uh, there weren't differences in and strength outcomes. Um, there are actually no statistically significant differences at all. Uh, and then if you look at the effect sizes, there, there, there wasn't much except for a small effect on hypertrophy being slightly higher in the six days per week. But again, it wasn't statistically significant. This is a poster. It hasn't gone through full peer review. I think the overall take home is that you're going to see very similar results uh, at a certain point and a certain frequency level. And it may be more dependent on training age. Um, I'll, I'll come back to that. So first, I think we need to get away from the idea that high frequency equals good, low frequency equals bad. Um, volume, I would say, is probably comes first in the order of priorities if, if you wanted to look at it that way. Uh, that if you do a similar volume program, um, you over the course of a week at least, you're probably going to have similar results. And it's only when you start to get to the extremes, like, like body part-based stuff, where you're only training a muscle group once every seven days versus you know, full body three times a week, but the same volume, do you start to see differences? Um, and it's like anything, it's, it's not a linear thing with frequency. It's going to be tapered off, you know? So probably twice per week, uh, you know, based on all the meta-analyses that have come out, you know, or originally we had the, the Wernbaum systematic review from 2007. And now more recently we have uh, a meta-analysis on frequency that, uh, that Brad Schoenfeld and his co-authors did. Uh, and the effect of training each muscle group more than twice per week, it starts to really taper off at that point on average for people. Um, now that said, I do speculate that I think more highly trained lifters are going to benefit more from higher frequency. And the reason is it's not for some muscle protein synthesis reason. That's, that's perfectly fine, but I think that's, a very, that's too reductionist of a way of looking at it. Um, it comes down to adaptation. You know, you're going to need a stronger adaptation signal, higher level of stress, a higher stimulus to get a measurable or a significant change in a well-trained lifter, right? So you're asking the person to do more work in some way, depending on how you design your program. And 
there is just a simple amount, uh, just feasibility of how much fatigue and how much stress can someone take in one given block of time. So if you're asking someone to do a full body session with 70 reps per body part at a high RPE, that's going to be, you know, a three hour session, first of all. And then as you get into the last, you know, hour and a half of that session, you're going to see every set getting of a lower and lower quality, uh, both in terms of, of technical skill, uh, the load you're able to use, the reps you're able to achieve, and the mental stress that it takes to do it, and the physical stress incurred. So it makes just simply more sense to be able to go, right, I don't want to do 70 reps per body part in that one. Let's do 35, and then we'll come in two days later and do it again. So it's really more just an organization thing in my mind, is that as you become an advanced lifter, more total work or more, more total stress, probably a better way to put it, is required. It makes more sense to split that stress up over the week get an eight-hour eight chunk of sleeping in there, a couple extra meals before you come back in, uh, and break it up mentally so that it's not as, as stressful to do it. Um, so I think that is the reason why you will tend to see um, higher frequency programs becoming more important as one's training age advances. But for the average person listening, uh, if you are lifting anywhere from six months to probably two years, training each muscle group two to three times per week, Going beyond that is, is not going to provide any benefit. And if you go beyond that and increase your volume, it would probably be harmful. Okay. And if, and if you don't increase your volume but go beyond that, would there be any downside? No, I don't think so. No. Okay. Now, if you decide to, like, if, if you're only doing, like, 10 sets a week and you decide to do two sets five days a week, that's fine. I think that's kind of silly, but you could certainly do it, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. There may be some issues with motor learning. This isn't now big disclaimer here is there is, this is not my area. I'm not a motor, motor learning specialist. Um, but if you think about what is effective practice, you know, if you were to come in and do 10 sets of, of squats, you know, intentionally, you're going to eventually burn out and the quality of that skill development will go down. So someone could come and go to the other extreme and go, right, well, let's just do two sets every five days, you know, or sorry, two sets for five days in a row and get 10. Do you really get an opportunity to ingrain good habits if you're still in the learning phase of that skill? If you did the first set of squats that wasn't that good, second one you got a little better, and then you're done. You know, I guess, sure, you come back the next day, but there is basically, you know, you develop, you develop a skill with something and then it degrades until you do it again. It doesn't, it doesn't degrade back down to the start, but I'd be worried that maybe you're not actually developing enough skill in each one of those sessions. I, I think... For me, like when I study or when I practice something outside of out, out of bodybuilding, because you know I'm I do other things, you know, uh, if I'm trying to learn a skill, I practice it until I start to get mentally burned out from it, and that's when I go, you know, this isn't effective practice anymore. I'm actually getting worse. You know, I don't want to ingrain bad habits or start to hate what I'm doing. Um, so theoretically, there might be a sweet spot there to where doing too high a frequency with really low volume would be suboptimal for, for learning it. Maybe not. That, that may be completely false. But um, I think, I think their frequency should be used as kind of like a way to titrate your volume. If you don't have to do much volume to grow, which is great, fantastic, you know, take advantage of this period as, as an intermediate or, or beginner, uh, you may not need to do any more than training each muscle group twice per week, maybe three times per week, uh, depending on your schedule, your lifestyle, and, and your work capacity. So, right. yeah, I would say any higher frequency than three times per week is probably 
or really two times per week is probably relegated to more advanced lifters who need that to accommodate the volume they have to do. You know, I, I watched your video on bodybuilding genetics um, on the 3D Muscle Journey uh, channel, and, and it was a, I will link it in the show notes. It was an, an amazing uh, episode. But um, you said that you've been discouraged throughout your development. There could have been discouraged because you've, you didn't have the right mindset about trying to be the best Eric Helms that you can be and, and was comparing yourself to other people and stuff. Um, how, what is your thoughts on genetics? I guess that's my very vague question. Yeah, I think for the most part, um, the, the big take home is that they're, they're, they're non-modifiable. And um, if you're lifting purely to change your body, um, and you don't actually enjoy lifting, A, I think that's a problem, but maybe that's never going to change and you're just motivated to change your body. You really have to focus on changing your body, not achieving something that is, um, you know, that some standard set by, by either Instagram or a magazine cover or whatever. Um, because if you set yourself a standard, now, here's one thing. I actually have no problem with people setting very lofty goals and being motivated and having posters of Arnold up there. I don't think there's people out there who, you know, motivated by greatness and then halfway through their career they stop and they go, oh, I'm never going to be Arnold. I'm not going to lift again. There might be a <laughs> few people out there, but I think that's a pretty delusional worldview that's not that common. I think for the most part, people are, are motivated by the people who have awesome physiques. That's the whole reason why some of these people have 500,000 followers, you know. Nothing wrong with that. Um... But to keep themselves motivated at a certain point, they need to be more strongly focused on their own changes and what is realistic for them to stay in the game instead of burning out and saying, yeah, back in college, I lifted for two years, you know. Yeah. Um, so I think it's very important to, sure, be motivated by that kind of that cultural stuff. But really, in the end, if you want to see positive changes in your body, you have to be focused on improving you um, and more so. As I'm in my early 30s now, um, I look at where am I going to be in 15, 20 years. I will, might be at that point where I can't make any more. I can't improve myself anymore. And I might even be slowly getting worse as I, as I age into my past middle age. So I need to make sure that I thoroughly enjoy what I'm doing. Um, because it really makes no sense for when you're at most need in your life as, as an older person to stop training because you can't progress anymore. Right? That's when you actually need to keep training, is to keep yourself alive and healthy and keep your quality of life as high as possible as you age. Um, so I think, I think it's very important. I kind of present the idea of like a three-layered cake of your basis. And you may not be there now. I know I wasn't. It's, you may not be there initially with, with kind of having a strong foundation of loving the process but that's where you eventually want to get to of just truly enjoying working out loving working out to work out even if you don't have a pr that session even if you've had maybe three months where you're not necessarily progressing even though you're trying and you're liking the fight you have to enjoy the process then above that a, a good healthy chunk can be improving myself and then from there it can be some type of external goal if, if you're a competitor that could be winning a show winning a pro card um winning a world title. If you're not a competitor and you are just simply um, looking to prove yourself, it could be, yeah, I'm trying to look more like choose your, your superstar who's actually a, a reasonable kind of goal for you or I want to get X bench press, X squat or X number of bench arms, whatever. Um, 
because that may or may not be attainable. That That is a finite specific goal. Like I've been trying to squat 500 pounds for a few years. I'm probably going to get there. But if I don't, do I really stop training and go, screw it, I only squatted 496. I'm not, I'm never going to, you know, train again. This doesn't make sense. Yeah. yeah, and and this kind of uh, dovetails into the idea of long, longevity, which uh, Jeff Alberts, um, who I'll someday I'll try to get him on on the podcast because I I just love his take on on kind of the long haul. But um, with that said, if you could go back to the time when you were maybe two three years into your lifting career, so you know typical intermediate uh, kind of trainee, what would you tell yourself as as like some advice? You know, I think I had a lot of things right back then and that I was incredibly motivated. Um, I, I try to look at, okay, because when people ask me for advice, I think what I hate see, seeing on the internet is people just give advice because they see one post or one thing and then they think they know everything about the person or they just black and white binarily assess, is this good or bad? You shouldn't do that. Um, and what I often ask when someone comes to me for advice I'll normally basically, in more or less words, ask them, well, how's that working for you? And if everything's going great for the person and they're happy and they're making progress, I'm not going to sit there and, and try to get them to, to optimize their training or something like that. I don't, I don't think that's valuable. I, I, I like to meet people when they're at a point where they're a little frustrated, confused, and they don't know what, what to do next. Um, because, you know, changing your own body is very much a personal thing. And, and, you know, if someone wants to compete at a high level, then it becomes a little more like, hey, we should, you know, cross every T and dot every I. But so anyway, going back to myself, I would look at what what issues did I have? What things did I not have right? And I could probably count them on a few fingers. One was that I didn't have a whole lot of balance in some of my relationships. Um, I did things that were unnecessary, which were taking away from my relationships, like... Uh, Maybe not three years or two years in, but just before that, I think I was eating every two to three hours and thought I had to, you know. Um, little things like giving myself more more meal flexibility, uh, I think would have been helpful for, for maintaining more, more, more normal social life and without any detriment to my training. Um, two, I probably would have tried to talk myself into knowing that I didn't have to go to failure every session and that I could have maybe slightly more structure to my method of progression if I just sat down and thought about it um, because I did get some injuries as, as, a, as a young lifter uh, which were frustrating. I had a lower back injury, I had a shoulder injury uh, in 2006 and 2007 that could have very easily been avoided with just some, some basic uh, kind of slightly submaximal, you know, kind of linear progression and I, and I probably would have gotten stronger and then not been set back. Um, so it, it comes down to basically it's kind of pulling me back a little bit. but at the same time, not discouraging the fire I had, which, which drove me to train so hard that I was hurting myself and drove me to be so effortful in the kitchen that it was negatively affecting my social life. I think a lot of it is the same thing I do with my clients now. It's taking that, um, that fire and just more purposefully directing it at things that are really going to help them and trying to not let it singe themselves, you know? Then a hypothetical situation, let's say you have a client or, or a friend who is a trainee and says like, hey, I will be out of town for, for the next couple of days. Um, I'll, I'll miss a day in the gym. Um, can, I, can I or should I train twice a day today to make up for it or double the volume? What would you say? I'd probably try to give them a little bit of perspective and say, well, you know, that will make, there's, there's, there's like, 
in 10 years from now, you will have absolutely no idea of the difference. In a year from now, you'll have absolutely no idea of the difference. Even three months from now, you will have absolutely no idea of that difference. Um, however, you are exposing yourself to a slightly higher risk of, of, of injury, if not just being fatigued and tired. And there is only so much you can do in a single session anyway. And, you know, you're not, you're not going to lose adaptation in even a single day of missing a workout, let alone a week, you know. I mean, a week rather than let alone a single day. So I would tell the person just to chill out and enjoy their their vacation, you know. Um, now, that said, I, I get it. Like, I, I, don't, I don't enjoy taking time off from the gym. So when I go on vacation, I plan it out so that I could train because it, it makes me happy. Um, but I also don't sacrifice my vacation for that. So I, I don't sacrifice happiness on either side of it. I, I very much try to, you know, have my cake and eat it too so that I can do all the things that make me happy. Because it's a vacation, you know, that's the whole fucking point. Like, when people find out, you train, you know, four times a week while you're on vacation? That's crazy. And I'm like, well, I normally train five or six times a week. What are you talking about, you know? like, <laughs> um, So it, I think it's all, it's all specific to the person. And uh, I wouldn't enjoy, you know, multiple weeks at a time without training. That would, I, I, get, I get unhappy and I miss the gym. So I understand where the person's coming from, but at the same time, it's just yeah. one day. And, and thank you for giving me that transition because, um, you know, my, my next question would have been, it seems just following you on, on social media and just kind of uh, listening to stuff with you is that you're living a pretty interesting and, and cool life. And um, I'm sure you agree that being as strong and big as we can be is one good thing that we can do in this life, but it's not the only thing that we can do in this life. So. What is now your philosophy uh, on kind of balancing the two to get together in general? Because we want to be as jacked as possible, but also as live as rich of a life as possible. Yeah, definitely. I think um, I I am very much a bodybuilder and a powerlifter at heart. I've been, you know, I did my first meet in 2006 and my first show in 2007, and I've always wanted to be on the platform, on stage, competing, successful, and that that's very much been a strong motivator to me to train and live my life in a certain way. Um, but I also, I very much think of things in priorities. I don't think of things in black and white, and I don't think that's useful. So, yeah, I have, I have a lot of things I enjoy doing that, that aren't lifting weights or, or eating food, you know. Um, like, I have friends. I, I have a, a beautiful wife who I have an awesome relationship with. I read science fiction. I play games. You know, I travel. Um, a lot of times I'm traveling to talk about bodybuilding, but I really enjoy human connection. And, uh, so yeah, I, I, I try to fill my life with that. Um, and it's really not that hard in my mind to tick all of the big picture boxes, even in the oddest circumstances of I have to do a whole bunch of work for my PhD and, and do a bunch of writing and travel. Um, you know, like for example, my, my, my travel training schedule, I'll normally work it into my, my block of training is where I make that a, a deload week or a light week or where it's just not critically as important that I'm in the gym as much because it, it, it works with whatever, whatever my training plan is. And, you know, if it means I can only train two or three times per week, then I know there's going to be higher volume full body sessions, you know. Um, and, uh, and I focus on things like, you know, eating. And, uh, typically on vacation, I struggle to eat enough, you know. So I end up having bigger, large, larger amounts of food at each meal, um, because I know I'll only be out getting food twice or something like that. 
maybe three times, and then I'll just pack protein bars or protein powder and just keep myself kind of at a, a minimum threshold that's appropriate. So, I mean, basically when I'm on vacation or whenever I'm really under the gun, I tick boxes as in was total volume completed in the week, you know, regardless of the, the, the frequency or how I did it, that's training, right? For nutrition, is it, it, currently, it's am I not losing weight? Okay, mission accomplished. And then am I getting at least 1.8 grams per kg of protein? And if I get those three things, honestly, that's probably 90% of it, if not more. You know, right. so it's just the limit of how creative are you to be able to get all those things in. Um, but in the end, you know, it, some of the stresses are that you put on yourself or that I put on myself in my life affect everything. There's, there's no way that certain periods of time during my PhD don't take away from my body's ability to adapt to training. It's just the way it goes when you try something that's very, very hard. But the same can be said for, for dieting for a show. I mean, like, being a competitive bodybuilder in itself isn't actually ideal for getting as big as possible, you know? So it's like, if you really just wanted to get as big as possible, you'd never try to get down to 4% body fat. That doesn't help. Um, yeah, yeah. So I guess the reason I say that is for all the bodybuilders who listen who are thinking, man, no, I, I, would, I would never sacrifice for my, for my gains. That was my mindset too, but... If you're a competitive bodybuilder, you already sacrifice for your games. Your games, like your your vision of optimal, fits within the constraints of your life, right? So um, that that is always the, the the answer to the question is is what is optimal for you, which means within the things that you're gonna have as part of your life. Like I'm gonna be a married man. I'm gonna get a PhD. I'm gonna have friends. I'm gonna travel, and I'm gonna be a content producer. Within those constraints what is optimal and that's what I go for you know just just before we wrap up here um, what does what does living a happy and or interesting life mean to you yeah I think the big one is, is human connection so um, meeting people and and engaging with people I care about um, and vice versa is very important to me um, getting new experiences outside of the way I currently see the world so that means traveling uh, living in a foreign country, um, doing things like that, or, you know, reading books that are, you know, I don't just, like, you know, when I, when I read at night, I'm not reading studies on protein. I'm reading, like, science fiction <laughs> or fantasy or things like that. Really? Things that I enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, so so it basically, uh, it is engaging the world and trying to get new experiences, meeting people, uh, being a lifelong learner. That's very important to me. Uh, traveling. Um, and you know, trying to not be a static person, you know, like growing emotionally, I think is something that I'm always trying to do. And, and probably more important than all of that is making a positive, meaningful contribution to the world in, in the way that I can. I mean, not that bodybuilding is the world. It really isn't, but it it's something that people do. And, and if I can make people healthier and happier or help them to be healthier, healthier and happier in their lives while doing it, then that's kind of mission accomplished for me. So... Awesome. Awesome, Eric. Um, my very last question to you is, have you had any kind of concept, idea that you picked up anywhere in, in a book, in a podcast, in a YouTube video, anywhere that you just made you go like, oh, shit, like, that's powerful. Like, I, I'm going to implement that. Yeah, you know, to be honest, it's, it's, uh, it's something I, I don't actually remember where it came from. I think I've credited myself, but it probably did not come from me. And uh, it was years ago um, and it's the concept of everything is your fault 
which sounds callous and cold and hard um, and victim blaming almost if you think about it like politically but I use that as almost a philosophy uh, in my personal life of <clears throat> trying to look at the way that I have agency in every situation even and you, you, you could take it to the absurd level of the hail, you know, dented your car. How is that your fault? Oh, I could have parked somewhere <laughs> different. I mean, you could do that, and maybe there would even be value in it. But the way I look at it is that I really try to take ownership of not only my successes, but also my, my failures or areas where I could have done better. Um, because it's emotionally comfortable to put blame elsewhere, you know, to, to, to go, I had no, no ability to change that. I mean, an easy example is in bodybuilding. You know, people blame the judges or blame politics or, or whatever. Um, however, it takes you're actually taking your own power away. It might be emotionally comfortable, but you're making yourself unable to change the situation. If it's not in your hands, then what are you going to do? So it's that saying of it, it, everything's your fault is just a way that reminds me to be having to have agency in my life and to feel like I can impact things and to always be looking for even the small thing that I can improve on uh, to hopefully make the next time better or to become a better person afterwards. Right, I, I, I love that. Just getting rid of the victim mindset and or mentality and acknowledging that you're in control of things. Yeah, and, that, and yeah, I mean, it's all based on perspective. I'm sure like there's probably someone who's like, what about a freaking like, you know, Somali, like, you know, refugee like that? That's not fair. And I'm really that that's not what I mean. I'm not saying this is a political statement. It's really about the way you live your own life and the way you see things. I think there's a lot of value in in trying to see whatever agency you might have in any given situation. So, yeah. Awesome, Eric. Uh, perfect answer. And thank you so much. You've dropped some uh, golden nuggets here, as you usually do. And thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time. So. Thank you. You're welcome. I'm always happy to come on here and drop some nuggets. Well, folks, that was it. I told you it will be interesting. Soon I'll upload a reflection type of video where we'll discuss the most important takeaways of this interview and the lessons we've learned from this man. When that is out, I'll link to it in this video. If you like this, please share this interview around. I'd really appreciate it. Also, for more similar things, subscribe to my channel because there is lots of more cool stuff to come. All right. Thanks for hanging out until now and see you next time.